ahead and get started with a word of prayer here tonight, and uh, then we'll get into the uh, material for the evening. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us and uh, for the many graces that you give, particularly tonight, this little baby that was born to uh, Dave and Kim's, well, their, their daughter, and Lord, we do uh, pray that this child would uh, uh, remain healthy and that uh, uh, there might be great joy to see this child grow up not only to be uh, physically healthy and strong and 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 mature, but also uh, to uh, engage in in the, the life of, of of the church and to be uh, converted, and that uh, you would uh, see fit to uh, call this this little one to uh, your side. Lord, we do pray as we uh, talk tonight about the church that we would be encouraged by what we uh, by what uh, we we study tonight that we might be better church members, better participate participants in the work that you have for all of us to do in your name we pray amen Amen. okay so tonight our topic is to uh the uh the entry into and then also departure from uh the local church what are the procedures now last week we uh spent a bit of time talking about the qualifications for membership uh, which actually ended up giving us the effectively the the, the means whereby believers may be brought for the first time into the Christian church. Uh, so, so somebody remind me here, what are the four elements that we need to have in order for a person uh, to be uh, brought into membership for the first time? You don't have to name all four. But, uh, born again. Okay, first of all, you have to be born again. We spent a lot of time talking about the importance of a regenerate church membership. And why is that so important in Baptist polity? Well, so you don't get unsaved people making bad, uh, immoral, uh, unbiblical decisions. Right. So it's, it's not just a matter of who's representing us, although that is important. You know, we, we want to make sure that the purity of the membership is maintained mm-hmm. and the purity of our testimony and the watching world is maintained. But uh, especially in Baptist polity, we want to make sure that uh, we don't end up having unbelievers in, a, in decision-making roles within the life of the church. And in Baptist polity, that's the whole congregation. And so there has to be some very careful vetting at the front door uh, to make sure that people belong. Okay, so that so they have to be regenerate. What else? Baptism. 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 Yes, and uh, baptism. What? 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 What's the significance of baptism? What does that do? It's a pr- public pronouncement of your death to your old life and your resurrection and new life in Christ. Okay, so it's a it's a personal announcement of my. My, you know, getting my, my, turning my back on my old way of life and, and turning to a new way of life. What, what else is baptism? Again, that we talked about the sometimes unsung purpose of baptism. It's going It's, uh, the right of entry into the church. Right. So it's a right of entry. So it's not only just saying, I want to be with Jesus, but I want to be with the rest of you. And, and actually a reciprocal, but the, the assembly saying, yeah, we want you to be a part of us. Uh, so it is, it's again, part of this vetting process, uh, whereby a person is, uh, accounted, uh, worthy of membership. You know, they've been vetted. Is this person truly a believer? 
Let's ask the questions, the requisite questions to discover whether, whether he's, uh, he or she is, has, has truly embraced Christ or whether they just want to be part of a social club. And so it's very important that the, uh, the vetting go on. And that's where baptism uh, comes in. So what's, what's the third element? I think it's no known open sin. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting it too. It's, it's not as though they have to be perfect. Otherwise, none of us would ever be members of a church. But are there any, are there any issues that if in fact uh, a person who was a believer and a member of the church were discovered having these sins, um, would have to be undergo church discipline because otherwise you're just bringing them in just to turn them away again. So there has to be a, a, a discovery whether there are, like you say, known sins, public sins, uh, sins that are, that are deliberately unconfessed, uh, that are still evident in the life of that believer. It doesn't mean he's not struggling with sins, but there has to be the struggle. If there is no struggle, then we have a problem. And that's, uh, so, so, uh, not perfection, uh, but certainly some, a, a level of Christian deportment and a willingness to confess sin and seek forgiveness. And what's the last item, which is sort of wrapped up in the first two? Oh. The vote, the vote, the vote of the body. So it's, uh, and again, it's the reminder that, uh, you don't just decide to be a church member. Um, uh, the, the church decides to accept you as a church member. And so that's, uh, that's, that's how one is brought into the membership. And so, uh, what we've got here then, so we're, we're starting now we're getting into new, new material, bottom page 27. So membership means of admission, uh, for church membership. The first is by that process. And this is the only valid means for a new believer to initially become a member. And so this follows the pattern that we see in Acts 2 and elsewhere. Uh, but well, then the question is, okay, so how, how does someone who's already a believer, perhaps who's uh, been a member of another church, how, how, how is this process different? Well, uh, one of the key things is that we don't baptize a second time because baptism being a symbol of one's regeneration uh, by being immersed into Christ uh, and, uh, and and taking on the new nature to rise to walk in newness of life is not something that's repeated. It's a one-time act uh, whereby uh, we are united uh, with Christ, or at least that's what's symbolized here in the baptism. So there's not a second baptism, not a dozen baptisms, just one baptism. And so uh, that, that step is obviously ste- uh, skipped, but do we just uh, then just take their word for it? Well, historically, and I think built on biblical practice, there are some procedures uh, that I think are, again, are very important for us to, to confirm uh, that a person is, uh, maybe this word is too strong here, worthy of being a member. Uh, and uh, the first here is this letter of transfer. So number two, bottom of page 27, the letter of transfer. And before I go on, I want to clarify this. Sometimes this is called a letter of recommendation. Uh, and uh, that's, that's I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a problem to use that term. Although historically, the letter of recommendation is actually different within Baptist life 
a letter of recommendation would be a letter that a uh, a transient uh, uh, Christian would carry with them if he's perhaps on business or something of that nature on a trip. They would carry a letter of recommendation with them uh, so that they could participate in communion uh, in another church. So that's historically what a letter of recommendation is. Um, but sometimes that 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 letter has that 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 designation letter of recommendation has been. Uh, has migrated to be this letter of, uh, of, of transfer. And so the idea here is you're transferring your membership from one to another. Sometimes it's called, I say here, a letter of dismission, but that's actually incorrect because you're not actually dismissing a person with this letter. You're actually recommending them to another church to, to be accepted in that church. And then only afterwards is the individual dismissed from the the previous church. Uh, and we, we, we don't want to have someone dismissed from their church and then wandering around looking for a church for, which would mean for a time they would be without any oversight, any spiritual oversight. And, uh, it appears in scripture that this is the normal pattern that you would, you would carry a letter with you in order to establish the fact that you are a, a member in good standing. You're not just a, you know, a, a traveling troublemaker and there's plenty of those around you know i i eat i have i have lunch with a number of pastors a couple times a week and this is this is often the discussion that we have you know there there's there's folks that are actually out there you know either seeking to be a big fish in a small pond or going from church to church causing trouble uh, they just happen to be rabble rousers and, and, you know, after they're sort of harried out of one church, they pick up their, 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 their pattern in another. And, and it's just, I, I, I mean, I hate to, I hate to say this, but there's, there's, there's a lot of these folks out there. And this letter of, of transfer is one of the very best ways to, uh, to, to ascertain uh, that a person is, is a, is a, is a member uh, in good standing of another church. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean here that it has to be a letter, but it could be an email of transfer. It can be a text of transfer. It can be a phone call of transfer. It, but, but in, in some way, uh, a, a pastor or a church should check up on an individual to discover, uh, whether in fact the story that they're telling is true. Uh, uh, we don't just take their word for it, except in very unusual circumstances, uh, what we, which we're going to get to. Okay. And, the re- and I have five uh, passages here. I'm not going to have you look it up each one just for sake of time. But in each one, we we actually see references to letters being being exchanged. Uh, many of them in association uh, with uh, the the recommendation either of members or of leaders, missionaries and such from one church to the other. And so these letters were a per, are an important part of the early church and I think uh, legitimately a part of the church today. Again, the form is is somewhat immaterial. They don't have to be paper letters, uh, but there ought to be some sort of, of, of communication that takes place between churches uh, to make sure uh, that everything's on the up and up. Okay. Question sometimes comes up. Um, well, what if you're coming from another church that's just 
a really different kind of church. They don't either don't send letters or maybe a different denomination. Maybe you've, you've become convinced that the church you were in was not teaching, you know, it wasn't teaching good doctrine. So should you seek a letter from that? And the answer is, yeah, you should still seek a letter. Not so much a letter of recommendation because all things being equal, that church is not going to recommend uh, that uh, that you leave their church and come to another. At the same time, in fact, sometimes it's called a letter of good conduct. Okay, so just to discover is is this person a troublemaker? Um, not so much do you recommend our church because of doctrinal stand or whatever the case may be, but is this person is is he a is he a problem person? Does he go, go around causing trouble? Does he have sin problems that he's trying to to hide, and these are the kinds of things that we want to discern. Even if a even if someone is coming from a church that is a very dissimilar uh, uh, in terms of doctrine, okay. Any questions up till now? You know, you've got to, any any time you want to, you can interrupt. Second question here: What if a church won't send a letter? Or, and, 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 and not just that it's not their policy to send letters, but they say, no, we can't recommend this guy to you. And so we are not going to send a letter of recommendation to, for this person. Should you ever accept a person on those grounds? And of course, each church is autonomous. Um, and so no other church can actually dictate, uh, you know, what members a church will exclude or include. But if another church issues a warning that this person causes trouble, this should not be taken lightly. Uh, usually such a refusal stems from some sort of a spirit, serious sin, doctrinal deviation, schismatic tendencies. They they're, they're just seem to be just out to split the church or just disgruntled people. Um, Candidates should be encouraged to return to the previous church to resolve these kinds of differences before applying for membership to another church. And so, and this happens all the time behind the scenes at your church, at my church. You know, someone comes in and says, I'd like to be a member here. And, you know, the, well, why, why are you leaving your old church? Well, just some things happened. What kind of things? Well, you know, and, and then you, you, you learn that there's, some sort of problems between interpersonal problems, lack of forgiveness, uh, uh, affronts and, and, and such between members. And, and, and the, the advice almost always is this. Go back and resolve that. You're, you're not just going to leave that behind. Resolve it. Once it's resolved, come back. And, and the fact is, once it's resolved, you might want to stay because that's your family, right? Uh, but don't don't come here and try and become part of our family if the last family you were in you were just you just wrecked okay and so that 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 happens all the time probably a lot more than you realize uh when people come through uh to receive membership and i think it's an extremely important uh policy to have now there are sometimes occasions uh where you know, say somebody's coming from a King James only church and they just say, we refuse to recommend that person to your church because you're not. And each church has its own privilege. They're all each, each church is an autonomous church. And we can say, well, 
that's not something that prevents someone from being a member at our church. And uh, so we can accept them in, even if we don't get a letter. Uh, but usually, uh, as uh, uh, in very rare circumstance, uh, except in very rare circumstances, you want to at least get a letter of good conduct. This person's not a troublemaker. Um, and so this is a very important uh, because whole churches over the years have been blown up uh, by by laxity in this area. Uh, I just remember one fellow just, uh, you know, probably about 20, 25 years ago. He, he did, he did his rounds in the churches down river. He, he went to, I can, I can name five different churches he was a part of and every single one when, when he went through it just caused trouble. People left, uh, people were left fight in fighting with one another. And it was just a horrible situation. And, and some of that could have been prevented had there been a little bit more care in making sure that that, uh, that individual was was sent back to resolve his differences before he uh, takes up his his uh, pattern of behavior in a new place. Okay, any thoughts on that? This this mark this is somewhat related, and I know we're kind of behind. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but going back to uh, the the doctrinal statement of the church, uh, you know. And, and kind of under the uh, heading of each person, the priesthood of the believers, a person in their in their growth and in their study, they have a particular uh, belief about something. Not not a fund, not a tier one thing, not a fundamental of the faith, but but there's some tier two thing that you know they just the the doctrinal statement of the church. He just He's honest and he says, I, I don't believe this. And, uh, and can that be worked around or is, or is that he wants other, other than that, he likes this church, but you know, there's that maybe yeah. a sticking point in the doctrinal statement. And he says, I'm sorry. I, in, in all good conscience, I, I can't say, I can't say I believe that. I can't yeah. sign on to this doctrinal statement because of this point here. Yeah. That's, a, that's a, that's a good question. And I'm not sure that every church is going to handle that the same. I, I'm honestly not completely sure how your church handles it. So I'll, I'll just leave it out there. Um, but, uh, um, typically, uh, when, when someone is brought into membership, they're asked to, to look over the doctrinal statement and the code of conduct, or if there is, you know, a, a church covenant and say, you know, I don't believe that or I can't agree with that or I won't do this. Um, and and that would be part of the decision making process. Okay, uh, in in Presbyterian life, uh, they have what what are called scruples. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. You know, it's it's used in in different uh, in different contexts. But in, in Presbyterian life, what that means is okay. So a, an individual who's going to be an elder or or is preparing or uh, wanting to become an elder in in the in the uh, in the Presbyterian Church would say, okay, here I agree with the doctrinal standards, the Westminster standards, for instance. Except I don't agree with this point, this point, and this point. And those those three points, A, B, and C, they're called scruples. Okay, and and what what happens is when the church examines that person, they take that under advisement. 
and they will say, okay, we will accept you as an elder, realizing that you don't agree on these points, but also recognizing that those points are not all that important and that you can be a legitimate member of the clergy of the Presbyterian church. Sometimes they might issue also with it a warning saying, okay, you're welcome to be a, 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 an elder within our, within our ranks, but you, you can't teach that bit of doctrine that you hold that's different from the rest of the church. You, you can believe it, but don't, but don't propagate that. That's often what we do, uh, in, in Baptist church life, right? Okay. So we, we ask them, so tell me if you agree with the statement. And if they say, you know, I don't, I'm not completely sure on this issue. I, to me, that's not grounds for saying, okay, but well then you're out, gone. You, you can't join the church. Um, it's, it's just a matter that is taken under advisement when that person seeks membership in the church. And, uh, usually what happens is there's a determination, you know, this, this issue is too big. We, we can't accept you into membership or this is a minor issue. We can bring you into membership, but, but please don't try and make an issue of this and cause trouble over this, those issues. And I, I think that's usually where Baptist churches uh, fall. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm approving of that approach. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Just one comment. We left our former church after, well, I grew up there probably my whole life. And there was, it was starting to have some serious disagreements and we held on for six months. And then it was, we can't stay here because I would be, I would have been a troublemaker at that point. So, so we moved on and I don't think we ever got a letter of transfer. The former pastor wasn't returning phone calls to, to pastor Ken even. So, uh, and we, been there well we've been at cbc eight years with no trouble <laughs> so um and then looking back i see god's hand in it yeah you know we moved to a good place so yeah and that's a noble thing if if you realize that you're going to be a start cause start being a troublemaker because of the disagreement it is time to move on to, to a place where you can agree so it's hard when that happens, though, because sure. you have a church where you, I didn't get married there, but I raised my kids there. It's your family. So all the people there knew my kids growing up, and now I'm at a church where I don't, I didn't, you know, I don't have that. Right. And so I see people that are with people, they've all grown up together, and I get envious, and it's it's hard. And it's, I'm just, you know, this is kind of like my, because of life changes, my third church, my fourth church, I think. I know Sharon way back from Gilead Baptist and I'm, I'm glad to have Sharon because she's someone that knew me way back when. And there's something to be said for that, that continuity. And so it's, it's hard when churches, when, when that happens, it just disrupts, um, a lot of things. Yeah. And it, and it should be hard. If, if it isn't hard, then, then it wasn't much of a family, right? It, 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 I, I probably a little bit strong of a, of a, of an analogy here, but in some ways it's kind of like a divorce. Right. You've left right. Your and picked up with a new one. And that's hard to do. And ask anybody who's done that, right? It's, 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 it's a traumatic 
situation uh, for someone to do that personally. And it should be the same way uh, when you move from one spiritual family to another spiritual family. So, yeah. But that brings us, you know, that actually brings us to this next point here by experience. Now, so sometimes you can't get a letter. Either the church doesn't send letters or it's just a very different kind of a church entirely, or sometimes the church is dissolved, right? You know, the church no longer exists. What do you do then? Well, uh, then we, we do revert to this idea of experience. You can say, you know, this is, this is my experience. This is my testimony of faith. Uh, this, I was baptized by immersion in another church and I was a faithful member until X. And I would like to be brought into membership. And like I say, after all other options are exhausted, this is, this is the final alternative. But we really should do everything we can to make sure uh, that, uh, that, that person who's being brought in belongs and is going to, and is going to, uh, uh be a, a, a contributing, uh, not, not financially contributing, but a, a contributing member, uh, to, to the church. Okay. I have this thing about, the, do you, do you, does your pastor say anything about the right hand of fellowship? Extending the right hand of fellowship? It's been it's been used several different ways throughout church history. Uh, some some churches would act will actually uh, uh, require uh, that the either either new members would have you know there would be a laying on of hands uh, at inner city that it uh, it's it's an interesting use of of the right hand of fellowship that I've never seen practiced until I until I came there that. Uh, we all line up. The whole church sort of lines up and, uh, we actually shake hands with the, uh, with the new members. And, uh, and our pastor calls that the right hand of fellowship. It's actually a, a little bit different from the historical concept, but it's, I think it's a, a reasonable practice. You know, that you actually, you know, have, uh, have some sort of an interaction, uh, at least introduce however briefly, uh, to the new members so that they feel welcome, uh, in their new family. So that's how do you get in now how do you get out okay and uh it the uh the first two go pretty quickly here <laughs> the third one's going to take quite a bit of time uh one you could die okay and that means you're no longer part of that local church that's pretty an obvious one i don't really have to explain right uh number two uh by letter of transfer so if you're receiving someone by letter of transfer, you're letting them go by letter of transfer as well. And typically, uh, those are people who are going some distance uh, or, or members who are commissioned for another work. Uh, churches typically will discourage church hopping unless there's some real and vital philosophical reason why that becomes necessary. Uh, typically, uh, church hopping is discouraged because of the very fact that uh, this is your family and this is the way it, it ought to you you ought to you ought to work out your differences with within your family and and and, and make it work uh, so typically that's when what letters of transfer are used for usually they're granted by the full and unanimous vote of the membership uh, so it usually comes to some sort of a congregational 
uh, kind of thing. Some churches, the uh, the elders would do this. I, I'm inclined to think that if the if the whole congregation is involved with the bringing someone into membership, they should also be involved with their blessing of those who are leaving the membership. Okay. Uh, Hiscox, we mentioned his name a few times, allows for churches to issue a letter of good contact, conduct and withdraw without censure. Uh, so here's a situation perhaps like Dave's, uh, where there's, there's a realization that, you know, the member and the church are not seeing eye to eye, but there's no acrimony. There's no attempt to destroy the church. And so we will give them a letter of good conduct and withdraw without censure uh, from that ind- individual. Um, that practice is not without its flaws, but it's perhaps a, a, a good way for a church to preserve its responsibility to guard the spiritual welfare and behavior of its members while allowing for individual soul liberty, someone who disagrees with the, what the whole church is doing and wanting to move to another church. Uh, with with whom they can have greater fellowship. Okay. One thing that's notably absent here is the idea of someone resigning or withdrawing from membership. Okay. Uh, because there's no biblical precedent for it. Okay. Um, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, if you uh, enter into your church now, there's there's a there's a packet, a membership application, and it spells this out. I, I think early on, some of the earliest members didn't get that, um, and it was introduced a little bit later. But uh, now everybody who goes in, into community it signs this, and there, there's you're you're agreeing to this when you come in. That you don't just walk away. Okay, that's that's not a legitimate approach to church life. Uh, if there's a problem, we've got to resolve the problem. Uh, if you're going to move on, that's that, you know, to a different location geographically, that's fine. It's not as though the church can prohibit you from doing that, but you should try and go through those procedures. You should want to go through those procedures in order to make sure that uh, everything's on the up and up. Okay. The idea of someone simply walking away, withdrawing membership or resigning membership is really not a, 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 a legitimate approach uh, to church life. Okay, either a person is voted out for their misconduct or uh, they are voted out with, you know, with, with the blessing of the body to another church. Okay. So the idea of resigning, withdrawing or maintaining active, inactive roles, uh, where after so many months or years, that person is just dropped off the membership. That is actually, that's actually contrary to the spirit of membership. Uh, by, by entering into membership, you are saying we, we are going to look after one another in, in terms of spiritual health. And so if somebody becomes inactive and simply disappears and we let them go, that's an inappropriate response by the church. The church should do everything it can uh, to resolve any spiritual conflicts or or uh, malaise uh, that may have set in in that individual. Okay, so it's it's a it's a it's a breach of the church's responsibility to simply let people go or or get rid of them without without in so much as a you know can we help you in some way? Okay, so what happens then if someone becomes 
sideways towards the church, whether in terms of their their beliefs or their conduct or their lack of conduct. You know, they they don't show up to to church services ever. What then is the church supposed to do in order uh, to remain faithful to the scriptures? Okay, well, uh, excommunication is the only other way uh, that someone can be uh, to remove from the church. And in that case, there's always censure involved. Okay, you're being dismissed from the body because based on what you believe and what you or what you are doing, you're giving evidence to the church that you're not a believer. And that's really what church discipline, the final steps of church discipline or excommunication are communicating. Let him be to you as a heathen man and a publican, someone who doesn't belong, someone who isn't a legitimate member of this church. And then it follows up with that statement here. Whoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whomever you loose on earth will be loosed from heaven. And it becomes a very important uh, uh, decision for the church. Now, by way of introduction, I say the church discipline has gone terribly out of vogue in the modern church. And I know your church does practice it. So it's uh, it's not as though I'm introducing something that's uh, unknown in your church. Um, but in the church broadly, if I can put it that way, not your church, but in the the Western church, if I can put it that way, the idea of discipline, if it's discussed at all, is usually discussed as in, as something very exceptional to normal ecclesiology. Uh, something extremely rare, a desperate response to something that went terribly wrong in the life of the church, extreme circumstances. Uh, someone, you know, somebody robbed a bank or somebody was involved in a rape or something, something, something so terrible, uh, that a person had to be immediately removed from the church. And sometimes that happens. Uh, but that should not be the only occasion where church discipline is used. In fact, I, I point out here, um, uh, one of uh, my teachers when I was at Southern Seminary, Greg Wills, uh, did a dissertation uh, on church discipline in Southern Baptist life. And he studied the uh, decade from 1781 to 1860, uh, went through thousands of records uh, uh, where he where he observed how many people were a discipline from the church and how many people were brought back into membership, how, you know, how many were restored and so on and so forth. So he did a lot of, of spade work and discovered that during, during, uh, during that period, during Southern Baptist life, 4% of all church members, Baptist church members nationwide were brought up on charges of church discipline every year. 4% of the of the members of Baptist churches throughout the country in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, it wasn't Southern Baptist before 1860, uh, but uh, in the in the Baptist church, 4% of all Baptists were brought up on charges for church discipline every single year. And of these, 1.45 were disfellowshipped or actually removed from the life of the church. Most of them, most of them, for neglect of duty, okay? Uh, that, that is, they, they stopped coming to church most of the time, and specifically, they stopped coming to the communion services. 
uh, the, uh, that was, that was seen particularly as a way of avoiding accountability to the church because of, uh, because of details that we're going to discuss in the, in the, uh, doctrine of communion here. Uh, but that was, that was viewed as an attempt to avoid, uh, accountability to the church. And if, if someone consistently did this, uh, then they were brought up on charges of, for church discipline. Okay. The, the, the conclusion, the, but the, the remarkable takeaway from this research that Greg Wells did is that this is, is that the, this 80 year period is also by a wide margin, the greatest period of growth in the whole history of American Baptist life. So it's the greatest amount of discipline by percentage in Baptist life. And it's the greatest growth in the Baptist denomination. Okay. They go together. And he, and he studied it. It's not a small sample set, right? It was 2,700 associations of Baptist churches over the course of 80 years. Okay. And the discovery was that the more there was discipline, the more healthy the church became and the more prosperous it became in terms of its, its growth in terms of, uh, in, in numbers, which seems and to most of us to be completely backwards. If you're, if you're getting rid of people, wouldn't the church shrink? Uh, but the, but the fact is, if you get, if you are making sure that the church is purged of those who don't belong, then it becomes a very attractive place to those who do. Okay. And so what happens then, and, and not only that, but those, those who do remain within the life of the church are usually the healthiest. Okay. And so the church did far better uh, when church discipline was routinely and regularly practiced. Okay, many Baptists today would be very upsettled, unsettled if we did, if we we introduced those kinds of practices again. We tend to prefer an individual, private, anonymous expression of religion. We're very independent. We don't want to have any accountability to the community. If we want to walk away, we just walk away. But this deferring approach is regarded, this deferring approach is sometimes regarded as the most loving way to deal with church discipline. But in some ways, it's actually the most hateful way. Okay. Because you're, you're, you, you are not caring ultimately uh, for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing dangerous things. And, and, you know, in the life of the, if, if we think of it as a family, like you've got families, you see your children engaging in activity that's going to be dangerous to them. And you say, you know, the most loving thing I could do is just simply let them, let them, you know, let them go, let them crash and burn. That's, that's not generally how a family is going to, to work. Now, I understand there's sometimes situations where that happens. Uh, at the same time, normally you're, you're trying to prevent your family members, your children, your, your, your siblings from, from engaging in the kinds of activities and patterns of habits that are going to injure them. And that's the way it ought to be in the life of the church as well. Okay. As Lehman has argued in his book, probably the best book out there on uh, church discipline, ignoring sin is not only ruinously unloving, to the undisciplined, but also crippling to Christian witness and destructive 
of the viability of congregational polity. I think we've already talked about all of those things. It's unloving to let a person continue in sin. It's crippling to Christian witness if you let unbelievers or disgruntled or or uh, sinning believers, you know, publicly sinning without repentance. I mean, that just destroys Christian witness. And then also, as we've seen along the way, it, it destroys the viability of congregational polity because you've got people making decisions in the life of the church who really should. Okay. So, uh, that's, that's sort of how we, uh, that's how we start here. Any questions up till now? I know, I know this is a, this is a hard doctrine to, to follow and perhaps there's some questions along the way. And, uh, again, I invite you to, to chime in, uh, when you've got comments or thoughts. Yes. Sharon. Um, it seems because of the, sometimes the size of the church, you have these mega churches that it would be, and I don't know how they work, uh, but if you have a smaller church, it's easier for the pastor or the elders or leadership to know what's going on. And so if people just don't show up to church or they just fall away, sometimes depending on the church, just, well, people come and people go and that's their attitude. They're gone. Um, and then in other places, if the church is so large, how are people being shepherded and, and cared for? Yeah. Well, that's a real challenge. And, uh, and it, in, in many ways, even though you, you like your church to grow, there are, there are, there are difficulties associated with being a large church. And I think it's incumbent upon any church that grows too large for, you know, one pastor to sort of keep a handle on that either needs to divide into multiple churches, uh, multiply the elders or, or make some sort of a structure, uh, where everyone has accountability with one another within small groups and such, uh, so that, so that that can be maintained. But you're right, uh, that oftentimes some of your larger churches are, are very lacking in any sort of structure whereby church discipline can take place. And as we're going to see here, starting off, starting, starting here, that the church discipline, you know, we, we sometimes tend to think of church discipline as the last step, throwing somebody out. But there's actually a sense in which we shouldn't think of that as what church discipline is any more than if you've got a, you know, you've got a wayward child in your home, you know, discipline is not just throwing the person out of the house. I mean, it might come to that, but there's a whole lot of discipline steps along the way before you get there. And they're all part of the discipline process. So we're, we're actually going to look through the whole process of church discipline. And, 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 and quite frankly, the process of church discipline should be going on, go, ongoing week by week by week. You know, anytime you have you, you see someone who's committed a sin, particularly one against you, you should talk to that person. I mean, that's the very first step in church discipline, right? I, I, it's, it's discipline within the life of the church. I recognize it's not whole church discipline at that point. But but the sharpening of one another on, on an every Sunday basis is part of the church discipline process. And and oftentimes the the, the forms of discipline are quite positive, right? When, when you want to develop discipline in a child, what do you do? You, you give them jobs and, you know, when they, when they fail, you sort of 
pick them up, dust them off and say, you know, you need, you need to, you need to cultivate this discipline, work harder, you know, and, and so, so that's, 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 that's all the discipline process. So don't think of church discipline as just those last terrible steps that are taken when someone's removed from the church. The whole process should be ongoing all of the time. Okay. So why do we do this? Well, the function of church discipline, if it were reduced to a single idea, it's this, to maintain a pure community by means of catharsis. That is, it's designed to remove sin from professing believers or, failing that, to remove the sinning believer from the midst of the church. So so I think sometimes we, we I think we reduce the function of church discipline to restoration. That is, that is certainly a goal. We always, we always want to see that person repent, seek forgiveness, and be restored to fellowship. But actually, that's not the totality of the purpose of church discipline. And, and we have to think in terms of the whole church, right? Sometimes what, what the best thing that can happen in the life of the church is for someone who is not a believer and who got in there, you know, by some terrible mistake of the church, that person needs to be removed for the sake of the purity of the church. Okay. Uh, so, so while the goal is restoration, there's a realization that there's another purpose for church discipline, and that's to maintain the purity of the body. Okay. So individually, church discipline is designed to shame, terrify the offender into repenting. And to restore, remediate him to communion with the body. And I, and I, and I, I use that word carefully, you know, terrify. You, you we're actually trying to terrify one another. Well, yeah, that's, that's the language that's used in first Corinthians five, five. Deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit can be saved in the last day. That's, that, that sounds terrifying to me. And, and, and so, and so ultimately that, that's, that's what you're trying to do. Say, hey, if you don't repent, you're going to be thrust out of this church, out of this church into the world and into the domain of Satan where you're going to be pummeled. You really need to repent and be restored to fellowship in this body because ultimately, you know, if the church says we have doubts as to whether that person's even a believer, that should, I mean, that should be one of the greatest, most terrifying things you'd ever hear, right? The whole church doesn't think that you're a believer. Wow. That's terrifying. And that's what the church does in church discipline, ultimately, when it moves to those final steps. So it's to, so, so here is to, to shame the individual, say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be ashamed of that. You should repent. You should seek forgiveness. And if you don't do this, the consequences are horrific. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's effectively what you're telling someone, uh, when, when they, they're coming under church discipline. Okay. Matthew 18 again says this idea here that the goal is for the, uh, uh, for, for the individual to win your brother. And even the ultimate treatment as a pagan, an unbeliever is not ultimately a punitive thing. It's cathartic. We're, we're trying to make him consider the horror of his condition and consequently to purify himself. That's what a catharsis is, is a purification, right? And so that's, 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 that's the goal. 
Second Thessalonians, don't associate with the person so that he can be put to shame. Okay. Uh, so it's the action of the whole body uh, towards that individual that will compel him uh, to return uh, to Jesus Christ and seek, seek forgiveness. And some of you have seen this work, uh, work very well. Uh, there are occasions it, you'd say it doesn't work in that the person never repents, but there's a sense in which it did work then because it purified the church. Um, so, so both of those goals are in place to purify the church and to restore the individual. So corporately, church discipline is designed to eradicate sin and preserve the purity and the testimony of the church. And this, I think, is particularly visible in 1 Corinthians 5, where it's this individual, um, you know, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among your church of a kind that even doesn't occur among the pagans. Even the pagans are taken back by, wow, that's, that's a wicked thing to do. And what is it? Well, a man has his father's wife, probably not his mother, but probably a, a, either a second wife of his father or a former wife or, a, or, or whatever the case may be. But having a sexual relationship with the same woman that his father does. And the church apparently is proud of their tolerance. We allow this to go on and we don't judge. <laughs> and Paul says, you shouldn't be proud. You should be filled with grief and put this person out of your fellowship. Okay. And so, uh, you know, fueling what Paul is saying here is the fact that the Christian community is to be set apart as better than the world in terms of their behavior. So that when we offer, so that we can offer answers for the hope within us. And there's no room here for the world to dismiss us for living inconsistently with our own message, right? If in fact, you know, we, we say, you know, you, you need to embrace Christ and live in newness of life. And if that person can look at your church and say, wow, there's things going on in that church that we don't even do as, as unbelievers. What, what kind of reason is there for us to join your church? You know, I, I've always been arrested by a statement that uh, John Stott uh, makes that, that the, uh, the more like the world we are, the less reason there is for anyone joining us, right? Okay. So if, if, if our conduct is no better or, in fact, is worse than is in the world, the, the, the prospects of being successful in our evangelism are dim. Why would, why would anyone join a body like that? Okay, and so, so Paul is very careful here in 1 Corinthians. Hey, if someone is involved in that kind of public wickedness, that person needs to be excluded immediately. In fact, we're going to uh, spend time talking about approaches to church discipline, and there seem to be two approaches in Scripture, one for sort of everyday you know, sins or sins of neglect or uh, or, or interpersonal conflict that, that are small in nature that really only escalate if, if someone digs in his heels. And then there's this kind of a situation where someone is involved in egregious public sin and there seems to be an accelerated, uh, process, uh, for someone in this, in this situation. We'll get to that in a little bit, but Paul seems to be very concerned 
and in fact, so much so that there isn't even any, any, you know, okay, hey, this person who's got his father's wife and they're having sort of a sexual liaison, why don't you go to him, one or two of you, and have a conversation with him? See if he'll he'll listen. No, it's it's get rid of this guy. Get get him out of here. He's causing trouble to the church. He, he's bringing despot against the church of God. And that person needs to be publicly censured, okay, uh, and, and immediately. And so, you, you know, if you continue on here, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of the dough? If you, if you let this kind of thing happen in the church, it's going to destroy the, ch- the whole church rapidly. So get rid of it. You know, I mean, the, the language is very harsh and strong. Someone who is engaged in the in 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 the worst kinds of sins, public and uh, I can say yucky sins. Uh, that 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 kind of a person needs to be immediately addressed. Okay, so restoration, I still still is in 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 you know it's part of Paul's concern. In fact, when we get to Second Corinthians, we actually find that this person has repented. And Paul actually has to tell them, hey, okay, yeah, you, the, the church discipline was successful. <laughs> you, you can, you can back off now and bring him back into fellowship. <laughs> you don't, you don't need to keep, keep pounding him. Okay. I, I, I did call for swift and decisive response to the sin, but after the fact that that was resolved, you can, you can bring that person back into fellowship. Um, and so he's very careful to say that. But at the same time, his concern here is not so much, first off, the restoration, but the purity of the church. And the restoration sort of comes as a, as a secondary concern in this particular instance. Okay. I don't think I have to say more, more about that, but uh, do you have any, any questions up till this point? So the purpose of church, uh, church discipline is typically remedial. Okay. We're trying to fix the problem either by fixing the person or by fixing the church through his removal. Over the years, there have been some who have thought of church discipline as a matter of punishing disobedience. In fact, some have suggested that there's a practice of shunning. Okay. Particularly within I think some of your, uh, like the Amish community, there's somebody who's involved in a sin. Even after that person has repented, there is a window of time, weeks or months, where that person is going to be shunned as punishment, continued punishment for his sin. Um, and, that, and there doesn't seem to be any place for that. Uh, wherever we see uh, true repentance occurring, restoration the door to restoration is now open there is no there is no penance that has to be paid in order for restoration to occur so once once forgiveness has been sought once repentance has been voiced uh then uh, restoration uh is immediate okay i think we can do this next point here and then uh and then we'll, we'll call the night here. But what, for what reasons would we engage in church discipline? And 
you know, the, the, the first answer is any sin privately observed within the body can can become the subject of church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. There's actually quite a bit of debate here uh, in this text as to whether this term, this phrase against you is there. Okay, and some, some have suggested here, okay, if this is really only somebody who actually sins against you. Uh, but there's actually some debate. In fact, most of your modern translations suggest that this phrase probably shouldn't be there. If you observe your brother sinning, whether that sin is directed at you or whether it's directed elsewhere or is directed at no one in particular, you know, some sins don't, aren't directed at individuals per se, go and show him his fault. Okay. That's the first step. Okay. So any private offense, uh, that, uh, that needs to be addressed can be the subject of church discipline. Now, it does not become then whole church discipline un, 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 unless there's resistance. Okay. So at every point along the way, if the person repents, then that's where it ends. Okay. So what actually ratchets it up to the second and third and fourth steps of church discipline is that individual digging in his heels, refusing to repent and refusing to seek forgiveness. So, Ultimately, uh, when we're talking about private offenses, that which ultimately uh, results in someone being removed from church membership is is a refusal to repent. Now, that ultimately becomes uh, the the reason uh, for uh, for removal. Okay, and every member should be in, engaged in this all the time, right? If you see someone in your membership. So a brother in the membership who is engaged in sin and doesn't seem to be dealing with it, doesn't seem to be aware of it. You don't go tell the pastor. You don't go tell your friends. You go talk to the person. You know, immediate communication with, with someone who can solve the problem. Okay. And so that starts with you just telling that individual, nobody else. Okay. And as we're going to see, it, the, the, the scope just grows only as far as is necessary to, to effect resolution, repentance, forgiveness, and that's where it stops. And uh, it's, it's, it is the task of every member. Yeah, there's no one really who's accepted from this. Okay, So the goal here is not simply to maintain an uneasy harmony in the church, but do one's part to eradicate sin in the body. Okay. Uh, sometimes uh, th- this verse, First uh, uh, Peter, love covers a multitude of sin, has been taken by some to say, okay, if you see sin in the body, that we should actually cover up the sin. Don't confront it. Uh, cover up the sin so that nobody knows about it. But that's actually uh, uh, probably the wrong way to see that verse. Okay, so let's let's look at three options here. Some suggest that First Peter is best applied when a believer ignores sin in the body or endure sin precipitated against them personally. And so uh, the believer harmonizes First Peter and Matthew 18 by determining to cover up sins rather than confronting. But it is true, of course, that Scripture encourages believers to endure ill treatment from outsiders, 
But nowhere does scripture commend a loving disregard of sin in the body for the sake of unity. That, that's, that's never there. How, it, it could be asked, can a believer truly manifest love towards a brother by allowing him to continue sinning? Okay, So it doesn't seem like that's what the verse means. Others suggest that 1 Peter 4 is best applied uh, when believers develop a thick skin in relationships. That is, they cultivate tolerance so they're not easily insulted. That is, believers harmonize these two verses by resolving always to assume the best of fellow believers when they speak or act out of turn, and as a result, not rush to judgment and confront in haste or for petty reasons. Now, this is more more legitimate approach here, right? Okay, so, you know, somebody says something that could be taken in a bad way or a good way, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the response of love is to say, you know, he probably meant it the good way until I'm convinced that he, that he, that he did. I think this, this could really resolve a lot of problems in our, in our society today, right? You know, rather than just ratcheting things up by assuming the worst, just assume the best. And, and there's some, there's, there's good passages that tell us to do that. You know, think no evil, believe no evil. Okay. Uh, so assume the best from your brothers and don't, and don't confront hastily or retort to that. And that's true. I mean, you know, you know, the love passage, the love chapter there, first Corinthians 13 tells us that we ought to do that, but I'm not sure that that is the totality of our solution to the problem here of first Peter four. I think the best harmonization of these texts is seen when a believer against whom a sin has been committed successfully confronts the offender and gains his brother, he afterward keeps no record of wrongs. Okay, Because true love does not keep a record of wrongs, as 1 Corinthians 13 says. So the idea here of covering a multitude of sins is not just to conceal the fact that sins have occurred. A lot of people, a lot of churches have really suffered when that's happened, right? Cover-ups. Okay. That's never good for the church to be in, in, engaged in a cover-up of sin. But rather, once you've actually had a confrontation with a, with a believer because of a sin that he's committed, he repents, seeks uh, forgiveness. At that point, we're not going to bring it up back up again. We cover it. We, we forgive and we forget. Okay, I'm not going to keep bringing up that incident over and over again. Okay, uh, because forgiveness involves more than just saying, you know, must more than words. Uh, and so I think that's probably how we should understand those passages to work in harmony with one another. Uh, it's not as though Peter is saying just cover up sin, while Matthew is saying confront sin. I think they both can be harmonized by saying confront sin, and then once that sin is resolved, then cover. Then, then cover it. That is, don't, don't bring it up again. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's private sins, which can be pretty much anything that can't be resolved. And then there's public offenses, uh, which we're going to look at as well. And I think we're going to see two approaches, as I said here, for church discipline. And uh, we already looked at the one kind, gross crimes, Incest, immorality, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, or swindling. Where do I get that from? Well, it's a list that we find in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay. 
These are the kinds of sins that are not even tolerated in broad society. Okay. Even, even polite society says, yeah, no, you shouldn't be publicly drunk. You shouldn't swindle one another. You shouldn't be engaged in gross immorality. But those, those things are inappropriate even outside the church. So these, that's why I call them gross crimes. And so this list probably, uh, is, is designed here to, to let us know the kinds of sins that need immediate action rather than the, the long, elongated process that we find in Matthew. There's also heresies. Uh, you know, Paul says that someone comes in preaching a gospel other than this one, let them be damned. It's like, whoa, okay, what, where's the love, Paul? Why didn't you draw him aside and show him his fault between you and him alone and then bring two or three with you? And then, no, no. When someone bring, someone, when someone threatens the gospel, this needs to be addressed immediately and forcefully. So blasphemy, false, uh, false gospel and doctrinal aberrations that threaten Christianity itself must be addressed swiftly. So these are public offenses. Schism as well. So active division of the body for personal advancement needs to be addressed decisively. It's not something that you want to drag out. And then neglect of duty. Okay, so I say that this is a public offense because it's usually some, it's, it's sort of an anti-public defense, if I can put it, uh, offense, right? Someone who doesn't do this over the, the course of months and you say, where's, what happened to Billy? You know, he, he hasn't been at church. He hasn't come for the last month, two months, three months. Where is, where's Billy? And it, it becomes a, something of a public offense uh, because of its, because of the absence of that individual. And so that's why it becomes something of a public offense there. And I say, it's safe to say that any sin can be a catalyst, uh, for, uh, for church discipline. Uh, but not all sins, uh, are addressed with the same swiftness in scripture. And so we're going to have to look at two approaches to sin. We're going to look at the next week. We'll look at an approach for private sins and then an approach for public or, or gross sins. And I think we'll be able to discover in the two passages that we look at uh, a difference here, uh, in those. So, so that again, we're going to sort of cut off in the middle here. Uh, but any questions for as, as to the purpose of church discipline? Uh, the occasions for church discipline and the reasons for church discipline for now? Uh, Mark, not, not having uh, personal devotions is, is a ground uh, under four neglect of duty. That would be a, that would be a ground for church discipline. I mean, that you would want to encourage and, and, uh, and, uh, Encourage. I mean, you'd want to encourage. Hey, you need to have personal devotions. But uh, yeah, the reason reason that became an issue is because most of the uh, covenants, the Baptist covenant, the standard cap, uh, uh, standard uh, Baptist covenant said, uh, if you and I'm sure you're familiar with that, the New Hampshire covenant that's often used in Baptist life, it includes there we we maintain. 
to maintain family and secret devotions. We maintain that we will not engage in X and Y. Uh, we engage, we, 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 we covenant together to give to the needs of the church. And so for that reason, since that's part of the covenant that binds those together, if someone is not meeting the terms of the covenant, then it becomes grounds for uh, discipline. Otherwise, the covenant doesn't mean anything. Now, we could we could quibble over whether some of those elements should be in the covenant. But once they're there, I, you know, and, and you and you solemnly swear to do these things, and then you don't, then it becomes, uh, I think, pretty serious, pretty serious issue. Hmm. That's interesting because, well, I mean, you probably know I had a navigator background, so I kind of had it pounded into me early on, daily devotions, you know, right. and the quiet time and, you know, and that's, that's, that's a part of my life, but family devotions, you know, I just, I've fallen down on that. Yeah. And yeah. And of course, family devotions can mean a lot of, can, has a broad, broad definition. It doesn't necessarily have to be sitting together and opening your Bible and, you know, but there has, there should be at least some level of propagating your faith within the family. Yeah. Whether that's formal or informal. But, but again, the, the point here is not so much that you have to do all of these things, but once you covenant to do them and don't, that becomes a, a matter for, for discipline because uh, otherwise the covenant doesn't mean anything. Now, now you, you're, I don't know that your covenant includes some of those things, but uh, if your covenant does and, and you review it monthly or every six months and you, you actually say this, I'm going, I'm going to give to the offering. I'm going to have devotions. I'm going to pray. And then you don't do any of those things. That does become a, a an issue of neglect of duty within the life of the church. Okay. Yeah, Sharon. I I have a question about dealing with um, especially young girls who are living with a guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not a member of the church, but their parents are, and then they're pregnant, and then they want to have a shower in the church. <laughs> I, I know how I feel about that, but um, and probably because I'm old, but I see this happening more in churches. And in the one church, I got an invitation, and that's what happened. And it said, we want to honor so-and-so. She wasn't married. She was living with a guy. And they're going to honor her with the, with the shower. Now, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously more than one approach to that. I know, I know that's happened a few times in our city and I, I, I've been very pleased with the way Pastor Dorn has addressed it. Uh, if, if a, you know, if, you know, a guy and a girl, you know, shacked up and, you know, a baby resulted and brought public shame, that shame was not covered up. It was addressed, you know, and if that, if those individuals repented, there probably is a sense in which it's a good idea for the church to to gather around them and to say, you know, 
you messed up, but let's not make this the end of your Christian walk. Okay. We, we, we can pick up the pieces and move on. And so I, in a situation like that, a shower might be one of the most appropriate things that you could do. Um, but the idea of ignoring the, the sin problem, I think we are running into some serious issues there. Uh, someone who's engaged in sin, the sin hasn't been confronted and you're celebrating anyway. But the person is not a member of the church. And then the church is having the shower for this person. Well, yeah, again, I, I'm not sure what policies that uh, you have there. I, typically, churches are uh, showers, are, and you know, churches I've been involved in are reserved for for members, or at least one of them has to be a member in order for that to uh, for that to be to to be done. But again, I, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to speak to. You know, and probably there are churches who would say, let's do this for this, you know, this unbeliever so we can have an entree for the gospel. Probably, I, I don't know how, how effective that would be, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speak to that, but it, I, we're actually going far afield here. It's not a church discipline issue at that point, but I think the church does have a, have, have a responsibility to make sure that the purity of its own membership is preserved. And then also to celebrate when, when that happens. So if somebody sins and a child results and they repent and they seek the church's forgiveness, I think that's a very appropriate thing to, to, for a church to do, to, uh, to, to extend a, a shower and their blessing. Can I ask a question? It goes back to baptism and membership. Sure. Sure. I think I know the answer. It's going to, Late, it's going to lie with uh, letters of transfer, but baptism brings us into, according to what uh, is it Hammett, and probably what your notes say, the local church, correct? But it also brings us into yes. the universal church. So it's a right. sign and a seal of our regeneration and salvation. Could the church rebaptize it to bring people into the local church? Or it's yeah that yeah that, that is an interesting that is an interesting thought because if, if if we're correct that baptism has two functions one to say I am with Jesus and I am with this body then it actually has two functions one of which could never be repeated and the other which could <laughs> because you could go seem, to another church right right but it would seem like if you could do that that would be a very good sign to the church that. You know, before the church, they make a profession and a, yeah, but I know. Yeah. I think ultimately, I understand that. yeah, ultimately what, yeah, ultimately what water baptism does is illustrate spirit, baptism, which is tied with one's redemption. Okay. And so, and, and entry into the one universal church. Uh, it's, I mean, it's localized at some level with, with water baptism. But I think the predominant meaning of baptism is I'm going to be united with Christ and with Christ's universal body. And that would only be done once. So that's, that's, that's the rationale for only having baptism one time, uh, even if someone transfers membership to another church. I know 
someone in the family who is in the Brethren Church. And when his mother uh, and father joined, they wanted her to be baptized. She told them no, but because you three times. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll actually talk about that. Yeah, we'll actually talk about that. And, and part of the question too is, okay, so what constitutes a a real baptism? You now, if somebody got sprinkled, if somebody got uh, baptized, but before they got regenerated, is that is that a, is, so? We'll we'll talk about some of those issues as well. Uh, when we get to the topic of baptism, but that's the rationale for only. Oh, Dr. Combs could speak to the three times frontwards or whatever, right? Isn't that grace bread? Right. <laughs> yeah, grace bread would, would yeah. do that. So. Okay, well, we're way over time here, so I'll let you. I'll let you go, and next time we'll go through the procedure for church discipline. And then we'll move on to some of the other uh, details about uh, uh, elders and, you know, some of the officers' duties, membership and such. Okay. So we'll see you next week.